Skogar, Iceland, a long time ago. There once lived a farmer who had three sons, all strong and wise and bold. They all lived together on a splendid farm near a beautiful roaring waterfall that helped nurture their land. Always was there a magnificent rainbow hanging over the mists of this mighty waterfall, which was called Skogafoss. For as long as the sons could remember, their father told them stories of when the country was still young, the land still cooling, when Vikings still raided distant lands and the altars to the old gods still stood in place of the Christian churches. The story went like this. There lived two neighbors, Viking settlers, who were divided by a river that neither of them particularly enjoyed having close to their homesteads. The men's names were Thrasi and Lothmunder, and not only had they once been fearsome Vikings, but they were skilled sorcerers as well. Of course, being settlers in a new land, and Vikings to boot, they were both headstrong and stubborn. Every day, one of the men would go down to the riverside, furrow his brow, and call upon the power of the gods to move the river just a few more inches onto the other man's property. Then, the next day, the other neighbor would go down to the river, see it was just a little bit more uncomfortably closer than it was yesterday, and push it back even further. This went on and on for some time, until both sorcerers soon realized that, in altering the landscape over and over again, they had inadvertently created a sandy wasteland where there had once been vegetation and greenery. They had spoiled a land that they were still trying to tame, and so the two sorcerers agreed to combine their powers instead and create an amenable solution. They turned the arid waste into a gorge and had the river fall through it into a basin, creating the waterfall that is still there today. This was not the end to the tale, however. Though we do not know what became of Lothmodar, Thrasi eventually grew old and gray and had amassed quite a successful fortune. Perhaps Thrasi had no heirs or loved ones on which to pass on his wealth. But while he was still able, he pulled all of his gold and all of his silver into an iron chest and, using his magic, placed it into a nook behind the waterfall. For whom the chest was meant for, nobody knew. Thrasi did not leave behind any instructions, no tests of merit, no stipulations, only a rhyme, which translated into English goes like this. The chest of Thrasi is filled with treasures, located beneath Skogafoss waterfall. The first man who goes there will find great richness. This was the story told to the three brothers, and in time they became strong men. But their father had grown old in years, and though the brothers were able to tend the farm, they found themselves in want of money. So they decided to go down to the waterfall and test their worth, in hopes of recovering Thrasi's enchanted treasure. The brothers were capable and clever, and they knew the water of Skogafoss was very dangerous. If they were to retrieve the chest with their lives intact, they would need to take a careful approach. They found an iron hook and tied it to a sturdy rope, and figured the best course of action would be to hook and reel the chest out of the waterfall. It was good as an idea as any, after all. But when the brothers had gathered this rope and made way for the waterfall, one of the three was compelled to look behind him in the direction of their farm. To their collective horror, their homestead was ablaze with billowing black smoke rising above the hills. 
Thinking first of their father's safety, as well as their livelihoods, the brothers raced back to try and put the fire out. But as they rounded the bend of the hill, they stopped dead in their tracks. Their home lay in the distance, yes, but it wasn't on fire. It was completely fine. Perplexed and no doubt feeling a little foolish, the brothers confirmed with each other that they had definitely seen their home ablaze. Ruling out madness, they whispered to each other a far more unsettling theory, that the magic of the Viking sorcerer was still active, and their quest was going to be far more difficult than they thought. The treasure of Skogafoss Falls is one of Iceland's most famous stories, but it's not the only one. The sagas tell of another Viking, a brutal and cunning berserker who left many legends and stories in his wake, along with just as many bodies. And if the tales are to be believed, he also left behind a secret hoard of silver as well. Of all the great civilizations, the Vikings probably have some of the most instantly recognizable iconography. Long ships, giant men with red beards, long hair, horned helmets, which didn't exist by the way, and a kind of pillaging joie de vivre. But a lot of these depictions are a bit cliche. In reality, the Vikings were a lot more complicated than our media often portrays. For example, the Vikings weren't actually a singular people, in the sense of the Romans or the Aztecs being a grouped civilization. A Viking was more like a profession, though one that certainly left its mark on history. Which is kind of funny because we don't really know the exact origins of the Vikings at all. We do, however, know their first contact with the outside world, and it began rather dramatically on June 8th, 793 Common Era, when Vikings raided a monastery island in Northumbria. Due to the violence and destruction left in their wake, especially on a Christian conclave, the people of the British islands weren't really willing to give these barbaric invaders much room for nuance, and this event influenced the English perception of the Scandinavian people for centuries to come. So what drove the Vikings to, well, Viking? We have some theories. The territories in the region that we recognize today as Scandinavia were experiencing a combination of resource scarcity, intertribal conflict, and a newfound knowledge of the world beyond their shores. This combination of factors may have compelled the Scandinavian peoples, who are often clumped together as the Norse, to synthesize their battle prowess and their seafaring ability and set out to colonize and plunder new lands, which it turns out they did exceedingly well. Vikings established colonies and trading posts in Scotland, England, France, Ireland, and even so far as Russia. 
And they weren't always entirely unwanted there either. For all the perception of these so-called barbarians, the Norsemen could be quite civilized, when they weren't warring and looting, that is. Their hygiene and appearance was remarkably sophisticated, and there are even anecdotes of men lamenting their women finding Viking men far more attractive than them, the Virgin English and the Chad Vikings. There were also Viking women, and we have a few records of these women fighting alongside men. In the context of Norse society, women did enjoy more freedoms than their European counterparts, including land management in some situations. Marriages were usually arranged affairs, though women were permitted to divorce their husbands and remarry. And single, unwed women were afforded almost the same protections under the law as well as granted their own homes. Though the Norse had a three-tiered caste system, which did include slavery, there were no taboos on children born outside of wedlock. A major influence on the Viking customs of conquest was their religion. The Norse believed in a pantheon of gods, predominantly a clan of interrelated deities called the Aesir. Their leader was the Allfather, Odin, a wise seer who took on characteristics ranging from warrior to trickster. Gender is an interesting subject when it comes to the Norse deities. In the sagas, Odin often takes on the guise of women and practices a brand of prophetic magic usually done by females. In Odin's employ were a host of warrior women called Valkyries, who chose righteous warriors slain on the battlefield to bring back to Valhalla, a fitting afterlife for soldiers, complete with food and drink that continuously replenished itself. These warriors would be needed at the end of the world, Ragnarok, a war between the gods. There was also, of course, the god Thor, who commanded lightning and wielded Mjolnir, a dangerous hammer that could split the earth in two if he willed it. With so many venerated war deities, it is no wonder that the Norse prided themselves on battle. And this also sometimes included battle magic. Elite among warriors were the Berserkers. The name comes from the fact that they would wear the skins of bears and thereby channel their power, though it is now believed that they may have also ingested mind-altering mushrooms to enter a frenzied state. Outside the battlefield, some sorcerers would cast enchanting runes to work their spells. Runes were also a written language, supposedly revealed to mortals after Odin hung himself from the world tree for nine days. With the right rune, a sorcerer could blight crops or heal the sick. Guided by these customs and traditions, the Vikings raided all the areas around Scandinavia. But there was one island in particular that drew their interest relatively later in the game, a curious land of fire and ice that belonged to no one. An unusually hot portion of the Earth's crust influenced the volcanic activity that eventually led to the creation of Iceland. And even today, active volcanoes are common occurrences there. Iceland's unique geology has resulted in one of the most unique, breathtaking landscapes on the Earth, and it's often used in science fiction movies as a stand-in for other planets. A Viking named Ingolfur Arnarsson sailed to Iceland in 874, a little less than 100 years after the Vikings invaded northern Britain. The island had been discovered earlier by other Viking explorers, one who noted the presence of icebergs in the area, and thus gave the island its name. Contrary to popular belief, the naming of Iceland was not a Viking tactic to throw off would-be settlers and divert them to the perhaps more attractively named Greenland instead. 
Arnarsson fled Norway after being caught up in a blood feud. Soon after, other colonists fleeing political turmoil, mostly the policies of the Norwegian king Harald Fairhair, also arrived. As the Norse colony was vulnerable, and many of its residents had been failed by the breakdown in interfamily diplomacy overseas, the Vikings decided that the leaders of the clans would meet at a designated area every year to settle disputes and regulate laws. The public was also asked to join these meetings, especially if they had issues that needed resolution. This assembly, called the All Thing, would essentially become the world's first acting parliament. And aside from a brief period of suspension in the 1800s, has remained the world's oldest nearly continuing assembly of domestic leadership. Iceland is also a boon when it comes to first-hand sources for the history of the Vikings, as some of the most detailed chronicles of Viking life recorded here in the Icelandic family sagas. Covering a span of 150 years, these accounts give us a range of human experiences, from rivalries to romances to observations of the natural world. We also get a good look at some colorful Viking personalities, but of all of Iceland's homegrown heroes, there's one bad boy that stands out in particular, Egil Skallagrimson, responsible for one of Iceland's most sought-after lost treasures. What we know of the Viking poet comes from an epic written about his life, with the oldest dated manuscript going back to 1240 AD. So historical veracity is iffy, but most of the events therein are certainly believable. Though the parts involving magic are maybe up for interpretation. Rough estimates place Egil's birth around the year 904 Common Era, though his saga covers a larger period of history, going into his parents' lives as well as his own descendants. Egil and his brother Thorolf are born into a family of high esteem, their father being one of the chieftains who likely would have met at the Althing. However, his family are enemies of the king, Harald Fairhair, whose reign led to many people fleeing Norway for the safer shores of Iceland. The hallmark of all great heroes is the prowess Egil shows at a young age. As a three-year-old, he composes his first poem, and then as a teen he is discovered possessing the innate power of a berserker. But from the start, we can tell that Egil is not necessarily the most virtuous or forgiving warrior in Icelandic history. Around the age of seven, Egil loses a game with some local boys, and being a sore loser, or accusing them of cheating rather, he retrieves an axe and then brutally murders the cheater at large. This isn't the last time Egil resorts to an insane degree of violence either. He later kills off a rival by biting through his neck, and at this point in the story you can kind of see why the Scandinavians are known for their heavy metal music. But the body count eventually catches up with our Viking, who ends up killing the wrong man, the personal retainer of the Viking warlord Eric Bloodaxe. And with a last name like that, you can imagine not someone you want to piss off. Eric and his wife, Queen Gunhilda, send assassins after him, all of which Egil dispatches with ease. This injustice is not soon forgotten. Eventually, Harold Fairhair dies, spawning a massive fight for the throne. Eric Bloodaxe kills his two brothers to win it, and then, using his new power as king, places a bounty on Egil's head. Though Egil escapes, he decides not to run away for good, and lays a potent curse on the king and queen. You see, in addition to being a battle-hardened warrior, Egil was also an adept sorcerer, with a proficiency in rune magic. But 
Queen Gunhilda, on hearing this news, decides to counter with some magic of her own, inflicting an enchantment on Egil that forces him into a psychological torment that will only be broken if he meets her and her husband directly. Supposedly, it works. Egil is driven insane. The curses begin to take their toll. First, Eric and Gunhilda are exiled from their kingdom by a rival prince. However, they manage to claw their way back into power. This puts them on the same track as Egil, who, quite literally at wit's end because of this spell, decides to meet with the king and queen in their court and make amends. But Eric won't have it and sentences Egil to death. However, since custom dictates that a Viking cannot execute a man at night, Eric is forced to wait till morning to enact his vengeance. Egil takes this opportunity by composing what is hailed at the time as one of the best poems ever written, and it is enough to move Eric to spare the man's life, but not enough to exempt him from his crimes against the crown. Though this is often considered the most interesting part of Egil's saga, his adventures are numerous. Some quests highlight Egil's more compassionate side as a wise healer. In one account, he comes upon a sick woman and decides to seek out the person who cursed her. He finds a man who attempted to enchant the woman into marriage by carving love runes. However, he got the carving wrong and ended up afflicting the woman with illness instead. Egil destroys the runes and has the woman's bedding changed, at which point she becomes well again. At some point, Egil and his brother fall under the employ of King Athelstan of England. When his brother falls in the Battle of Brunebrur, historically dated to 937, the king, impressed by Egil's battlecraft, compensates him with two chests piled high with silver, as well as a golden arm ring. Egil then returns back to Iceland and becomes an arbiter of disputes. Towards the end of his life, an older Egil resides at his homestead in Mosfell, a town near the capital of Reykjavik, but relations with his still-living father, Skallagrim, are strained. Both men distrust each other greatly, and either wants the other's fortunes. One night, Skallagrim the Elder sneaks away from a Viking festival and sequesters his valuables in an iron cauldron, which he hides somewhere in the hills. He is found the next morning, having made it back to his bed, but dying from exposure. Egil does not inherit his father's money, which probably only compels him to follow in his father's example. And this is where we get what is perhaps one of the most pertinent moments in Egil's saga. I will let the excerpt speak for itself. It chanced one evening, when the household at Mossfell were preparing to go to bed, that Egil called to him two thralls of Grimm's, he bade them bring him a horse. I will go to the warm bath, and you shall go with me, said he. And when Egil was ready, he went out and had with him his chests of silver. He mounted the horse. They then went down through the home paddock and under the slope there, as men saw afterwards. But in the morning, when men rose, they saw Egil wandering about in the holt east of the farm and leading the horse after him. They went to him and brought him home. But neither thralls nor chests ever came back again, and many are the guesses as to where Egil hid his money. So supposedly, Egil took two slaves with him into the wilderness, had them bury the chests of silver, and then, throwing off the cloak of a feeble old man, slayed them both to keep the location a secret. Dead men tell no tales, after all. 
What is most interesting about this part of the saga is that the poem actually gives us several theories on where Egil Skallagrimsson buried his silver. First, a seasonal riverbed. East of the farm at Mossfell is a gill coming down from the fell, and it is noteworthy that in rapid thaws there was a great rush of water there, but after the water has fallen there have been found in the gill English pennies. Some guess that Egil must have hidden his money there. There are also other candidates as well. Below the farm enclosure at Mossfell are bogs wide and very deep. Many feel sure that tis there Egil hid his money. And south of the river are hot springs, and hard by there large earth holes. And some men guess that Egil must have hidden his money there, because out of that way, cairn fires were often seen to hover. Egil said that he had slain Grimm's thralls, also that he had hidden the chests, but where he hid in them, he told no man. Now, if you're wondering what a cairn fire is, I took this to mean that the alleged site was frequently used by Viking encampments and was probably a good place to bury treasure, since no one was likely to go poking around a disused fire pit. But for most Icelanders, the story of Egil's lost silver, as well as his father's buried hoard, were just that, legends. And though it's more than likely a few casual treasure hunters have tried finding it over the years, there are no official attempts on record, at least as far as I can tell, until August of 2001. Documented by New Zealander Mark Tanner, writer, adventurer, amateur beatboxer, and my new favorite human being, he chronicled his attempt to find Scala Grimson Silver on his blog, Confessions of a Treasure Hunter. He was part of an international team called the Athelstan Project, named after the king who bestowed Egil Scala Grimson with his riches. The Athelstan Project was composed of diggers, surveyors, technical experts, and historians from New Zealand, Canada, and the UK. Their research led to a 500 by 500 meter survey area near Mossfell, Iceland, where they deduced the likelihood of finding the chest of silver, with other areas scouted out based on the lore and the geography. But seeing as there haven't been any updates since 2001, it's unlikely they managed to find anything other than the thrill of an exciting adventure. The real treasure being the experiences along the way and all that. While the only accounts we have concerning the life and times of Egil Skallagrimson come from a literary source, there is a solid chance most of the story was true, more or less. That is the trouble with legends. But all of the historical figures named in the saga do check out, and it's highly probable that a Viking of great esteem would receive a fair share of financial compensation from a grateful king. Even so, there's a lot that still doesn't make sense. We know Egil was spiteful, but why bury all that silver instead of passing it on to a trusted ally or an heir? The same question goes for his father. Who were these treasures intended for, and why did Egil never offer instructions on where to find it? Well, perhaps he did. Maybe he imparted his secret to someone he trusted, and that person inherited a supply of silver that has long since been dug up from the earth. If not, years of soil, deposit, and debris are likely sitting atop an old Viking hoard. And in a part of the world as geologically active as Iceland, it may be nigh impossible to dig it up now if it ever existed in the first place. And now, the conclusion to our fairy tale. Deceived by enchantment and thwarted by nature, the three brothers did not falter in their quest for the old sorcerer's treasure. 
Taking up the rope and hook, they went to the edge of the waterfall, peered down, and noticed an unusual break in the cascade. Sticking out of the raging falls was the front piece of what looked to be a sturdy chest, complete with a beautifully smithed brass handle, a ring. The brothers locked onto this ring, hooked their rope around it, ready to reel it in like a priceless catch. They pulled and pulled, but perhaps their strength was just a bit too much. Or maybe the ghost of Thrasi was happy to deceive them yet again. The brass ring snapped off, and the chests receded once again into the falls. All the brothers had to show for their endeavors was a very attractive handle and a story. Maybe at this point, the brothers finally got the message. The chest might very well be meant for someone, but not them. For one reason or another, the brothers donated the ring to a church in the town of Skogar near the falls, or so it goes. When the church was torn down in the 1960s, the ring made its way to the Skogar Museum, where it now sits on display. So the ring or the handle definitely exists, but how true is the tale behind this tangible object? Nobody can say for sure. Taken with the legends of Egil Skallagrimson, there is a lot about these stories that just doesn't make sense. At least to us non-Vikings, anyway. If these larger-than-life men, so powerful that they could will rivers to move and heal the sick, were really wise, then why did they sequester their wealth? It's possible these stories may have just been embellishments to already fantastic legends, something to make the mythic figures all the more mysterious. Or maybe to keep us small folk asking questions, giving us something to quest for ourselves. Relic is written and narrated by me, Maxwell. If you like this episode and want to plunder my mentions, you can do so by rating and reviewing Relic in Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream this podcast. Connect with me on Twitter at LostTreasurePod and email me at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. You can also catch my stream on Twitch by searching Treasure Hunter Maxwell. Next time, it was once believed to have been the most coveted piece of jewelry of Renaissance England, adorning the necks of both Queen Elizabeth I and King James VI. So what happened to the artifact known as the Three Brothers? The adventure continues. <laughs>